Well, we come uh, this morning to the what we know as the, the closing of the book or the benediction. You know, the letters of Paul usually begin with some kind of greeting whereby he would give some words of, uh, of uh, commendation. He would identify himself as the, the writer. He would identify those who might have been with him at that time when he was writing the letter. Uh, offer a prayer sometimes for those to whom he was writing. And then at the end of the, the letter, Paul would have sometimes some personal words for specific people, or as in the case in Ephesians, some kind of general benediction or blessing uh, that he extends to the people. Uh, this is a benediction of, of sorts that Paul gives at the end of Ephesians. And in this benediction, Paul lists what I'm calling four spiritual graces. And they are peace, love, faith, and grace. Each one of those actually is a theme that runs all the way through the book of Ephesians. And so what I want to do this morning in this last sermon in this series is look at how each one of those graces or those themes is used in the book of Ephesians. I've given my sermon this morning the title, A Look at the Book. And so we're going to kind of use those four graces or those four themes as a means by which to kind of do a general review of this rich book of the Bible. So the first of these four spiritual graces that we find in our text is peace. Paul says in verse 23, peace be to the brethren. It's interesting, Paul actually begins and ends this letter on that note of peace. If you look back to, to chapter 1, everybody can do, be doing a good bit of that this, this, this morning. Go back to chapter 1 and verse 2. He says this is a part of the greeting. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then again, he concludes that letter by saying, peace be to the brethren. Peace is an important word in this letter Paul wrote to the Ephesian Christians, not so much because of the number of times it is used, but because of the important way that it is used in this book. Look with me at chapter 2, verses 14 through 16, where Paul says this, for he himself that is Christ is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them in one body to God through the cross by it having put to death the enmity. The word peace is used two ways in Ephesians. Uh, both are reflected, I think, in those verses I read from chapter 2. Of course, there is peace with God. And Paul talks about that in this verse, talking about us having been reconciled to him, verse 16. Being reconciled in one body to God through the cross. You know, reconciliation assumes... A broken relationship. 
if, if there's no broken relationship, then there's no need for reconciliation. But the Bible continually talks about us being reconciled to God. And that's because apart from Christ, we do have a broken relationship with Him. We are at enmity with Him. That's where we're at war with Him. And the text says that Christ came and through His death on the cross, He put to death the enmity. He reconciled us to God the Father. So there is this wonderful sense of peace with God. But the other way that word is used is in the peace we experience with others. Because we have peace with God, we can have peace with others. Now let me, let me say that a little stronger. Because we have peace with God, we must be at peace with each other. In these verses from chapter 2 I read a moment ago, notice in verse 14 he says, Christ himself is our peace. And he's broken down, it says, the, the barrier of the dividing wall. Now, when we studied that particular passage, we saw the main reference there is to the, the enmity, the, the, the barrier, the dividing wall that existed between Jews and the Gentiles. You can't think, humanly speaking, of a greater divide than what existed between the Jews and the Gentiles. They hated each other. They wanted nothing to do with each other. And even carried over into the Christian church because even converted Jews were wary of Gentiles coming into the church. It caused a great controversy in, in the book of Acts. And yet what Paul is saying is that, that Christ broke down that barrier. And even warring groups like Jews and Gentiles can come together in the body of Christ and experience real peace with each other. And the point is, if, if Christ can break down that barrier, He can break down whatever barrier it is in your life that's dividing you, separating you, keeping you from another person. Whoever it is in your life from whom you're estranged, with whom you have some enmity, Christ can bring reconciliation. He can bring peace to that relationship. Now, Paul fleshes it out just a little bit in chapter 4. In the first three verses where he says this, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Because Christ has reconciled us to God the Father, Paul says we're to be diligent, we're to work hard at preserving the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And the way Paul says that in Romans 12 is this. If possible, so far as it depends upon you, 
you be at peace with all men. That is, if there's a broken relationship in your life, you make sure you didn't cause it. This is not because of something you did or something that you said. Here, the wording is we're to be diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. And we're to do so, he says, with all humility and gentleness and patience and tolerance. That peace, that peace with God and peace with others, that's what Paul's blessing these Ephesians with at the end of this letter when he says, peace be to the brethren. Well, the second of these spiritual graces is love. The text says, verse 23, peace be to the brethren and love. Now, love is obviously one of the dominant themes, not just in Ephesians, but in all the Bible. And in this letter, just like Paul described two kinds of peace, he also describes two kinds of love. That is, God's love for us and our love for others. And yes, there's a wonderful pattern in the Bible about that, isn't it? God's love for us was introduced early in the book of Ephesians. If you go back to chapter 1, in verses 4 and 5, Paul said that God predestined us in love. Look at the end of verse 4 and verse 5. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. And you back up to the first part of verse 4. He says he did that before the foundation of the world. What that means is that you're in Christ today. You've been in Christ, in God's heart before the creation of the world. He had you in his mind before the foundation of the world. That's exactly what the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 1. Now, I can't think of a deeper, more secure love than that. Can you? The fact that God loved you before the foundation of the world, chose you in Christ before the foundation of the world, in love predestined you through Jesus Christ. What a rich blessing that is to know the love of God in such a wonderful and powerful way. If you look at um, chapter 2, you'll see that not only did God choose us in love, but God also in love causes the application of that to be real in our lives. That is, it's because God loved us that He chose us. It's because God loves us that He changes us, gives us new hearts, enables us to believe in Him and trust in Him. Look at chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. It says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. If you kind of boil that verse down, what he's saying is this. It's because of God's great love with which he loved us that he made us alive together with Christ. You know, the first part of Ephesians 2 talks about how we're dead in our trespasses and sins. And it's because God loved us, folks. He didn't allow us to continue in that condition. But instead, he, he made us alive together with Christ, gave us new hearts and new lives, 
enabled us to see the truth and to believe the truth and to trust in Christ for our salvation. God's love for us is a wonderful thing, isn't it? But the flip side is that we're to love others. And our love for others is contingent upon our understanding of God's love for us. I said a moment ago that if you know the peace of God, you must work at being at peace with others. And Folks, if you know the love of God, if you've experienced the love of God in your heart, you must, you must love other people. In fact, if there is no love, there is no faith. That's what the Bible says. If there is faith... There will be love. You know, John, the, John tells us, and Gary James has taken us through the epistles of John, what great study that's going to be. He says, if God so loved us, then we ought also to love one another. If you know the love of God, you are duty-bound to love others. And, and he goes on to say, we love because He first loved us. There's a direct connection. But you and your understanding of and your experience of the love of God and your love for other people. One leads to the other. You can't have one without the other. You cannot claim to know the love of God and still hate your brother. You go back to chapter 1 and verse 15. At the end of that verse, he mentions their love for all the saints. He said, I've heard of your love for all the saints. And then over in chapter 4, again, where we were just a moment ago. In verses 1 and 2, let me read those again. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you. This is serious stuff. He's begging us, folks. I implore you, he says, to walk in a manner worthy of of the calling with which you've been called. Remember in the first three chapters of, of Ephesians, Paul's been laying out the case that we were dead in sin, but God chose us in Christ for the foundation of the world. He loved us, gave us new hearts, enabled us to be born again. And he says, therefore, because God's called you to himself, you live like it. Live in a manner worthy of the calling God has placed upon you. And he says... Verse 2, that involves this. With all humility and gentleness and patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. When we studied that section, we, we saw that, folks, that just means putting up with each other. Showing tolerance is just loving people through the bad things. Tolerance. Enduring the hard times together and doing that in love. And of course, we, we saw that loving each other involves loving as Christ loved us. You go to chapter 5 and verse 2, verses 1 and 2. It says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. And walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, 
an offering and a sacrifice as a fragrant aroma. Part of imitating God, part of personal holiness is simply loving other people. Loving the way Christ loved us. How did Christ love us? He loved us so much he gave his life for us. Christ-like love is a sacrificial love. And then, of course, in the latter part of chapter 5, Paul applied this whole matter of love to the home. As we saw, he made it clear that the tenor of love in the home, contrary to what popular thought is, the tenor of love in the home is given to the husband. He says it three times. Verse 28, excuse me, verse 25, husbands, love your wives. Verse 28, so husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. Verse 33, nevertheless, each individual among you is to love his own wife even as himself. Love is an important part of the, of the Christian life, isn't it? Experiencing the love of God, showing that love to other people. The third of those spiritual graces we find in our text is faith. Let me read the whole of verse 23. Peace be to the brethren and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. There, love and faith are connected. As we've seen, saving faith works itself out in deeds of love. If there is no love, there is no faith. If there is no faith, then there will be no love. In the, in the evangelism explosion presentation of the gospel, faith is described as the hand of a beggar reaching out to receive the gift of the king. See, salvation is a gift that God gives to us. And faith is the mechanism. Faith is the means by which we receive that gift. If you look back again to chapter 1 and verse 15, where we talked about their love for all the saints, he also mentions in that verse their faith. For this reason, I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you. Their faith was in Christ alone. Their faith was deep and their faith was strong. People talked about the faith of the Ephesian Christians. I've heard, I've heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, the key focus on faith in Ephesians is found in chapter 2, where Paul has this wonderful discussion of salvation. We're saved by grace. That is, our salvation, as we've seen, is a work of God. But again, we receive it by faith. Look at verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. Now, we're going to talk about grace next. Here we're talking about faith. And notice the text says, you've been saved through faith. But even the faith is not something you do on your own. You conjure up by yourself. Even the faith you use to receive God's gift is something that God gives uh, to you. And if you look over in chapter 3, in verse 17, Paul talks about Christ 
dwelling in your hearts through faith. You see, faith is the means by which we receive and appropriate this great gift of salvation God has given to us. But but just as knowing the love of God does not exist in a vacuum without you loving other people, so the experience of of saving faith does not experience not come in a vacuum either. But rather, as we've seen in our study of Ephesians, saving faith is always a life-changing faith. Let me say that again. Saving faith is always a life-changing faith. If you see no change in your life, you have real reason to question if there is sincere faith. And again, one of the biggest changes that is brought about through our salvation is in our relationship with God. Notice that back in chapter 2 and verse 3. It says, Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And here it is. And were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. You got that? Apart from Christ, we are children of wrath. That is, we receive justly the wrath of God. Now, look at chapter 3 and verse 12. Let me read Start with verse 11. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus, in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. Do you see the difference? Before we are converted, we are children of wrath. After conversion, after this wonderful change takes place, now we have boldness and confident access through faith in Jesus Christ. From being outcasts, being at enmity and war with God, now we are His children, His beloved children. And He welcomes us to come to Him in any situation and for any need. And and so faith is essential to salvation. And it's an essential part of this epistle. Then there's one more, the fourth, of these spiritual graces. And that is grace. The closing verse of Ephesians chapter 6 verse 24 says this, Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus with incorruptible love. You know, the acrostic we use for grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. Grace is God pouring out His spiritual blessings on people who don't deserve it. If there's one ounce of merit, if there's one ounce of you deserving God's favor, it is no longer grace. But you see, we don't earn it. We haven't deserved it. We can't buy it. If you're in grace today, if you've experienced the grace of God today, 
is just because He has chosen to cover you with His grace and give it to you because of His love for you. You know, as we saw earlier, grace and peace are often tied together in the Bible back in this greeting in chapter uh, 1, verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's because it's, it's because of God's grace that we can experience God's peace. Uh, in chapter 1, if you go back to chapter 1 again. He talks about the wonder of God's grace. Look at verse 5. And 6. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. Why? To the praise of the glory of his grace. You know, again, I want to say it just like it is. Look, folks, salvation is not all about us. It's not all about us. Your salvation is not about you. Your salvation is all about Him. It is, as the text says, to the praise of the glory of His grace. And when you get to heaven one day, you know, we got all kinds of ideas about what heaven's like. I don't think there are going to be coffee shops in heaven where we sit around discussing things. Folks, you're going to be so overwhelmed by the amazing grace of God that saved a wretch like you that you're going to spend eternally joyfully praising the glory of His grace. Now, let's bring that to the here and now. What's worship? What's worship? If, if a big part of what we're doing here is not praising the glory of His grace, we're missing the point. Don't you see, even worship here is not all about us. It's about Him. Because He has loved us with this everlasting love. He's given us this amazing grace it saved us. It saved me. Look, I can look at my life and I say, how in the world has someone like me come to a living relationship with the living Christ and this has to be all about grace? And then he goes on to say, in verse 7 of chapter 1, in Him that is in Christ, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to what? According to the riches of His grace. God's grace is so rich. Now, we don't, again, have grace in a vacuum either. Isn't that interesting? Each one of these four graces have two sides. And again, the way I like to describe it in my simple brain terms is there's a vertical side and there's a horizontal side. We have peace with God, which results in peace with others. We have 
experience the love of God that leads us to love others. We have faith in God that enables us to change our lives and live in obedience to Him. And we have saving grace from God that then enables us to have sanctifying grace. Folks, we're not just saved by grace, we live by grace. And that saving grace, again, is not just an escape hatch from hell. It is to change your life so that you can live in obedience to God and to His Word. Grace is what enables us to live. That's what the hymn says. Grace has brought me safe thus far. And what? Grace will lead me home. I just think it's a wonderful way to end our study of the book of Ephesians. To think about these four important spiritual graces that help us in our daily walk with Christ. This incredible peace with God that enables us to have peace with others. This wonderful love of God that enables us to love others. This saving faith that enables us to live in obedience to God's Word. And this amazing grace that brings us into the kingdom and enables us to have salvation. Thanks be to God for this and all his indescribable gifts. Let's pray. Lord God, we love you. We're thankful for the gift of this book of Ephesians. And I thank you for the privilege I've had over the last year and a half to go through it with these people. Father, I pray it would not just be another study, but it might be one that stays with us, sticks with us, changes us. May we find ourselves going back to Ephesians time and time again to relearn things we've been over. Father, impress them upon our hearts and use them to make us like yourself. We would be always giving glory and praise to you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.